1: The dollar is down more than 7% versus the world's major currencies so far this year. That is the most in over a decade. So what are we expecting for next year? Will it just be more of the same? Here to answer that question is Daniel Katziv. He's head of FX strategy in North America for BNP Paribas, and he joins us now. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, So what are you expecting for next year for the dollar?
2: Well, more of the same on net. I think by the end of next year, the dollar will be weaker again. Uh, but we think right now uh, we're in a period where the dollar is bouncing a little bit, counter to that, that structural move. Uh, and we think we have a maybe 3 or or 5% move ahead of us for a lot of the dollar pairs over the next few weeks and months before the, the longer-term downtrend resumes.
1: Wait, just to make sure that I, I'm understanding that. In other words, you think that the dollar could strengthen 4 to 5% uh, against a number of its peers before returning to a downtrend?
2: Exactly. Yeah, we think right now the market's underpricing the significance of what U.S. rates have been doing, underpricing the likelihood uh, and the, and the consequences of tax legislation. Uh, and is generally just under-owned uh, in a world where markets looking for uh, rates and uh, yield and yield uh, yield delivering currencies.
0: Well, what has held back the dollar from uh, posting those kinds of gains recently? I mean, this is not none of this is brand new news.
2: No, that's true. I think the market has uh, built up a short position to some extent. And I think part of that reflects this understanding that yes, the structural even if you have the opportunity for a cyclical bounce, the big ten percent type moves over the next few years are going to be to the dollar downside. So there's been a reluctance to own the dollar. I think the market has been reluctant to fully price in uh, the um, consequences of tax reform until it actually passes, uh, having kind of gotten caught the wrong way on the legislative agenda before, and um, I think... That there's a cumulative effect of uh, rising front-end rates, which is what's been happening uh, in the U.S. over the last uh, two months. U.S. front-end rates have been grinding higher. And this does have a cumulative effect on hedging decisions and and, uh, investment decisions, which I think is going to only show up potentially over time if the market just can't price it in ahead of time for whatever reason.
1: So, just to put this all into perspective, the moves in the dollar will be tremendously important to a lot of different asset classes. And I'm thinking increasingly, as I talk with investors and analysts, that there is a growing complacency uh, that perhaps the dollar will rally a little bit against its peers, but ultimately will remain in this sort of weakened state, if not a uh, decline in value over the next year. And I'm just wondering, what happens if it goes the other way? Let's say it does strengthen. How much would it have to gain against its uh, rivals in order to disrupt things like emerging markets?
2: Well, I think it's a very good question. I mean, I think the the one thing when I talk to people about what what's going to happen next year, uh, the one thing that would really surprise people is if the dollar moved back to, to the kind of levels we saw after the uh, election in 2016. That that would really challenge a lot of assumptions about uh, where things are going. We don't expect that. It's not our base case either. But if I'm looking for the, the pain trade or the surprise uh, for markets in the, in the first half, and often we do get surprises in the first few months of the year, it would be the dollar does a lot better, that this Cumulative tightening that the Fed uh, from the Fed finally begins to kick in, and that all these things that people talk about—well, other central banks are hiking as well—that that's too far in the future to really provide sustained support for their currencies. And we get kind of a move to something like 110 in Euro USD and 120 in Dollar Yen. Again, not our base case, but I think that would be a big surprise for the market, and would challenge uh, a lot of different asset classes to to respond.
0: Well, Daniel, talking about that response from different asset classes, what does that translate to? Lower oil prices, lower inflation?
2: It could. Uh, you know, for if the um, example i would go back to is you know how things played out in early 2016 at that point the dollar had been gaining a lot and i think uh, many people in the market underestimated how much uh, feedback that would create into the economy into um uh, credit markets uh, energy markets uh, equity markets um, into the fed's own thinking um and just you know remember at that point the year on year rate in the broad trade weighted dollar, it got up to about something like like fifteen percent. It's hard for us to do that now because the base effects just don't really aren't really the same as they were in twenty sixteen. In other words the dollar's already still even though it's been weak this year, as you pointed out, the dollar is still at relatively strong levels. So it's going to be hard to get as much of a headwind from FX as we got at that time. Uh, but even something you know, smaller than that uh, you know, does create uh, a lot of uh, uh, feedback into other markets.
1: So, Daniel, how much do you think that the dollar will weaken versus its peers by the end of next year compared with where we are today?
2: Well, we've been using our long-term equilibrium fair value model to try and answer that question. And the idea is that you know the dollar got very expensive during the period in 2015 and 2016 when Fed policy was diverging from policy everywhere else. And over the next few years, as other central banks start tightening and the Fed ends its cycle, uh, we're going to have reconvergence in monetary policy. So, we think we could go back to these long term equilibrium levels. The biggest discrepancies are in versus currencies where the other central bank has been doing QE. So, for example, Euro USD, our long term equilibrium estimate is 133. Um, we don't think we're going to get there in 2018. Uh, we think we'll get there by the end of 2019. So, that'll be a, a gradual process with ups and downs along the way. By the end of 2018, uh, we're thinking 122 for euro USD, so just basically getting back to where we got uh, around the middle of this year. We think dollar yen could get um, uh, as low as uh, well as high as 117 in the near term, but then back down to 112 uh, by the end of next year. So a bit of a you know a, a V shape or upside down V shape.
1: You know, I just want to follow up on that, because when you talk about Europe and Japan, we're we're heading into a week of a lot of decisions. We're going to hear from the ECB and the Bank of England. And I'm just wondering, you know, who's driving the bus here? Is it the ECB or is it the Fed? You know, people talk about Trump and and the Trump trade, but is it really that Europe is doing better than expected and that they're going to be forced to uh, start tapering and possibly even lift deposit rates sooner than people are expecting?
2: The market is very sensitive to any indication that these cheap currency central banks like the ECB and, and the Bank of Japan might be beginning to exit. Uh, so you see whenever the ECB says anything even slightly hawkish, you see a big reaction in Euro USD, for example, whereas the Fed can actually hike rates and you know, the, the benefit for the dollar seems much smaller. I think that reflects the euro's cheapness, the dollar's expensiveness, and this perception that over the next few years, uh, things are going to be changing. Uh, but you know what I think really the market sometimes forgets is that even if the ECB is talking a little bit more about exit they're still a year away from doing anything really meaningful new on the uh, on the rate front at least a year away and in the meantime if you want to be long euros and hold euros you have to pay uh, a uh, you have to pay carry you have to be you know if you're you're dollar funded you have to pay a negative uh, rate differential to hold that position so that you know i think it's important to listen to the signal but not forget that the reality on the ground right now is that policy is still very accommodative in Europe, yes, the economy is hot, but what that does is create a, a real uh, downward pressure on real rates because inflation goes up in Europe, nominal rates are held stable, and, and real rates actually get, get lower, which can hurt the currency in the near term.
0: Thanks very much for being with us. Daniel Katziv is the head of FX Strategy in North America for BNP Paribas.
1: There was an election uh, yesterday in Alabama, and the verdict was somewhat surprising. This very red state turned blue for the first time in more than 20 years. Here to talk about what the implications are is Jonathan Bernstein, Bloomberg View columnist, uh, coming to us from San Antonio. Jonathan, thank you so much for being with us. What's your main takeaway from the election of Doug Jones to be uh, the senator representing the long red Alabama in the Senate?
3: Well, within the Senate, you know, every single Senate vote counts. And there's a huge difference between having a 52-48 majority, as the Republicans did, you know, still do until he gets one into having a 51-49 majority. You know, uh, Vice President Pence has already had to break ties six times because Republicans couldn't keep all 52 together. Um, you know, all else equal, Republicans would have lost all six of those votes. And we're going to have more of that in the year to come.
0: Well, Jonathan, maybe just go through some of the list of the defeated. Todd Akin, Richard Mordock, Christine O'Donnell. This could have been the Republicans' time, but something happened.
3: Yeah, you know, this is yet another time where a Tea Party or an extremist uh, Republican got nominated, um, you know, before Steve Bannon was involved in politics at all, this was happening. And now it happens even more with uh, Bannonite uh, candidates. Um, and they're they're nominating people who they should give away seats. Alabama, this should have been a lock election, even with the president very unpopular. Overall, Alabama is a very Republican state. They should have won this, but they nominated somebody who was a terrible candidate.
1: Well, so Jonathan, to that point, how much is this an idiosyncratic issue that had to do with choosing a bad candidate? Uh, and how much is it a harbinger for next year when we get a whole slew of uh, midterm
3: elections? Well, it, it's in some cases both. Um the three things went into the victory for Doug Jones, the Democrats. One was that Roy Moore has always been unpopular in Alabama. He's won, but he won by much less than Republicans typically won in his previous statewide races. The second was the scandal, um, which came up after he was nominated. And the third was that Trump is just a very unpopular Republican president. So It's idiosyncratic, the, the, the specific things that happen with Moore, but it's not idiosyncratic that Republicans have made a habit of nominating these terrible candidates. And every time that happens, they give away a seat. They may wind up doing it in the Senate races in Nevada and or Arizona in 2018.
1: So, Jonathan, I want to press you on that one point. You said that this has to do with President Trump being very unpopular. Does it? I mean, can we really gauge that this had anything to do with that? Because ultimately, if uh, Roy Moore was unpopular, he was unpopular. And yes, Trump uh, added his support at the end. But is this really a referendum on him?
3: it 's not something to a referendum it 's not that people you know in Alabama said i 'm going to vote against more because of Trump, but having an unpopular president of your own party depresses enthusiasm within the party. Voters are less likely to turn out. the other party is more enthusiastic um, you know that 's what produced a landslide for Republicans against Barack Obama in two thousand ten and um, right now, Donald Trump is about twelve point percentage points less popular than Obama was at the same point uh, eight years ago.
0: Jonathan, you make the point in your mo- in one of your most recent columns, you talk about how uh, Florida's Senator Marco Rubio uh, and Utah's Senator Mike Lee had an amendment to expand the child credit. Just tell people exactly how that played out and what that informs you of.
3: Well, you know, that was an interesting case where you had two Republican senators who had an amendment that they wanted to push. It would have increased the child uh, tax credit, and it would have they would have raised the corporate rate a little bit, or you know, not lowered it as much to make up for it. Two senators in a 52 to 48 majority, they didn't have the clout by themselves to force Mitch McConnell to make a deal. Now, some people criticize them. They could have still tried to. They could have found a third senator, but now with a 51-49. Two senators, any two senators, Republican senators, could go to Mitch McConnell and say, I'm not going to vote for this unless you give me my amendment. That one, you know, it, it seems like it's not a big deal, one out of 100. But in fact, it makes it easier for different small groups to be able to get their way in the Senate, making it much more difficult for the Senate to get anything done, for the Republicans in the Senate to get anything done.
1: So uh, just going forward, what's sort of the uh, strategy for the GOP? How are they going to frame this?
3: Well, you know, there's what they need to do is to find some way to improve. There are two things to f- find some way to defeat uh, these Bannon type Tea Party type candidates who are terrible candidates who are giving away seats. They haven't figured out a way to do that. Um, they had thought they did. Mitch McConnell thought that they were making some progress in that in the twenty sixteen nomination season. We'll see what happens as twenty eighteen goes along. The other thing that they need to do is find some way to make Donald Trump less unpopular. I you know, good luck figuring that one out.
0: I want to thank want to thank you very much, uh, Jonathan Bernstein. He is a Bloomberg View columnist and uh, previously a political science professor at the University of Texas at San Antonio. A
1: fascinating, fascinating election yesterday, and the, uh, the turnout was really interesting, and that was definitely something uh, that people are going to be watching is, uh, is the Democratic Party galvanized? Uh, what will it take to galvanize the Republican Party in the same kind of way for the midterms?
0: Yes, indeed. Technology alone cannot save your business from cyber attacks, so says our next guest. Chris Young is the chief executive of McAfee, of course, uh, previously purchased by Intel, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Chris Young, thank you very much for coming in. What do you mean by this uh, technology alone isn't going to save a business from cyber attacks?
4: So technology is really important in obviously putting together the foundation for security for any organization. But you have to have, in addition to that, a culture of security across your organization. This is really important. Security's gotta be something that everybody from your employees, your partners, your executive staff, as well as your board, all parties involved have to make sure that security is a priority and it's something that's part of our consciousness inside of any organization. So that culture is critical to augment also, you know, augment what you're doing with technology.
1: All right. When you walked in here, I asked in jest, uh, do you live in a constant state of paranoia? And you were talking about how you would never plug your phone into a public outlet because you don't know who's on the other side of it. And I have to wonder, I mean, I operate by going around thinking, are there that many people out there that are trying to fleece me? Are there?
4: In in reality, the number of... Uh... The number of, of people who get you know a hit, hit in these in these situations are pretty small from a mathematical perspective, but the problem is you know cybersecurity and cyber attacks are getting more pervasive. The numbers are going up every year, um, and it's something that everybody has to pay attention to.
1: Well, but I, I guess from a corporate standpoint, have the number of inc- uh, attacks increased exponentially, and have they gotten more and more sophisticated to the point where? Uh, companies are facing daily barrages uh, that they're having trouble
4: keeping up with? So the answer to that is yes. I mean, we see, uh, literally, if I was to show you any chart and pick at an attack type, literally every attack type is up and to the right in terms of absolute numbers that we see. Um, We've got, if if I was able to show you a presentation, I've got a presentation that I do that shows the last 30 years of cyber attacks. One of the things you see is that no individual form of attack actually ever goes away. They all change, they morph, they get more sophisticated over time. And now what we're seeing a lot of these guys do is they're actually combining attack types to, to come up with new attacks that, you, that a lot of those of us who are defending have a hard time conceptualizing because they're completely different approaches to uh, achieving your mission, so to speak, if you're a cyber attacker. Well, and
0: it seems as though they're also combining the fruits of their labors. For example, there is a database that's been reported of about 1.4 billion user passwords has been discovered on the dark web. And this is data that is uh, uh, um, taken from LinkedIn, MySpace, Netflix, a variety of other sites. And the comment is that none of the passwords are encrypted. And they've already tested them so that now they can be sold throughout the world. This is really a big business, isn't it?
4: It's one of the reasons you have to change your password frequently. I know for some people they feel that's annoying to have to change their password, but it's back to that culture of security. Security is everyone's responsibility, whether you're the person on the street or the CEO of an organization, whether you're in the business like we are at McAfee of protecting people, um, or whether you're the, the... the person who answers the phones here at Bloomberg, everyone has to take responsibility.
1: So, how much have McAfee's uh, profits gone up?
4: We've uh, we've we've been a, a successful business, as you know. We just spun ourselves out of Intel uh, earlier this year in April, uh, to be exact. And we've, you know, we're one of the 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 largest independent cybersecurity companies today. Um, we are, uh, you know, we're. I like to uh, joke internally that we're a. Uh, um, we're kind of like a startup, but we're actually quite large. We've been in the business for for several years, and it's something that uh, uh, we're very proud of. What do you actually do? So we are we provide cybersecurity products and services across consumer markets as well as commercial markets. We serve governments and businesses. Um, we provide products. We've got services. We do a lot of protection. And at the foundation of everything we do is really strong th- Threat detection and helping stop threats.
0: You mis- you recently made a purchase of a uh, Sky High uh, Networks, and this has to do with cloud computing. Are there specific risks associated with so much data and corporate activity moving to the cloud, where the people involved may not even know where the data resides?
4: They're absolutely. They absolutely are. If you think about where the world is going in the future state, it's going to be. A worker in any any organization is just going to be they're going to be on some device. They're going to be accessing applications and data that are in the cloud, potentially in a public cloud environment, and that's going to be the way the world was, is going to work. And so, we at McAfee, you know, have decided that together, when we close the transaction with Skyhigh, which happens in the early part of next year, we'll now be able to provide that end-to-end security from you know kind of the devices that users are working with all the way out through the applications and data that are in the cloud where sky highs establishes, establish themselves as a leader. We think that's the future of where the world is headed, not only from an IT perspective, but the cybersecurity model's got to operate that way as well.
1: Just quickly, what's your biggest fear with respect to some kind of massive data breach?
4: Um, my biggest fear when it comes to attacks is, is you know the impact on um you know, on major systems. You know, like I, for example, at a conference a couple of years ago, I had Ted Koppel come and talk because he wrote that book called "Lights Out" on you know an attack, potential attack on the power grid. Um, so I do worry about those things. I think those are real issues that we have to wrestle with, and I think there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be put in place. I think there's a lot of process and a lot of back to my culture of security, a lot of prioritization that has to be placed on the cyber security model in and around those critical systems.
1: I do have to say, though, when you change your uh, password so frequently, it leads to people writing down all their passwords in one place, which could just, just then get hacked. I'm just saying.
4: Or Chris you could Young. use a password manager.
1: That's true. <laughs> I guess you could You could get more tech savvy. Uh, Chris Young, thank you so much for joining us. Chris Young is chief executive officer of McAfee, uh, based in Santa Clara, California. I hope that you are OK with the wildfires.
0: It's supposed to be a quiet time of the year for municipal bond issuance, but preliminary numbers indicate that at least $9 billion worth of muni debt is expected to be issued during the week of, well, this week, December 18th alone. Actually, next week, but we're already ahead of ourselves. Now, this is according to data that we've compiled here at Bloomberg, and that is more than double, more than double the average issuance during the last two weeks of December. You have to go back to 1985, to find these kinds of numbers. Uh, And here to tell us a little bit about this and other things involving the world of interest rates and yield and bonds is Rich Taylor. He is fixed income client portfolio manager for American Century. They're based in Mountain View, California, and he helps manage more than $40 billion in fixed income assets. Rich, thank you very much for joining us in our 1130 studios. Thanks. Your thoughts about uh, muni bonds and this, this sort of wave of issuance that's that's coming is this uh directly related to the tax overhaul bill
5: yes i think it is Penn. again thank you both for having me and merry christmas to you and yours um yes uh normally as you know december is a very low supply month usually around 6 7 billion but as you know we're getting probably closer to 50 60 billion this this month alone uh that is still being readily absorbed due to the increased demand but it is really issuers trying to um, move up their issuance. Normally that would come in January, February in, in advance of this. what may come out of this tax reform bill. So um, you know, we do expect supply to drop off dramatically in January and February, but right now we're getting a big flood.
1: So uh, aside from the tax plan, which is still uh, up in the air, although uh, there is the expectation that uh, Senate Republicans will present a bill, possibly some kind of final uh, form or draft early next week... Um, how are you arranging your portfolio heading into next year? Any big allocation shifts?
5: Uh, that's a great question. And I think what we're expecting is, you know, we don't have a whole lot of clarity yet on the bill. I think the biggest thing that's uh, what we're trying to do is get in advance of if we get a tax exempt advance for funding. Elimination, that's 15% of the market. So, what we could see if the bill goes through in its current status, uh, you could see a 15% reduction in taxes at muni bonds. So, that would vastly change the sort of demographic of the supply constraints. So, we are uh, going along that route. And also, if the state and local tax uh, deductions get eliminated, that would certainly potentially change the way, the nature of the structure of the way state and local governments issue bonds and also yeah. their ability to raise taxes. But you're not so. actually
1: changing your allocation around this year.
5: Not at this point, no, because what? we don't have enough clarity left to know what the bill's gonna ultimately look like.
1: So one thing that I, I'm wondering, you know, a lot of people come in here and they say, uh, we're in a pretty good environment. We're not expecting any big hiccups next year. Very few people are predicting a recession of any sort. Uh, gradual tightening, but the central banks are all petrified of the markets and disrupting anything. Um,
5: that's right.
1: There's a lot of risk building. How concerned are you about that?
5: Very concerned. Matter of fact, that is my number one concern, Lisa, and I'm glad you asked that question, is that really since 2008, what we've seen is bond investors have, and, and understandably so, uh, their primary, if not sole objective in their bond portfolios has been to maximize yield. We're in a low interest rate environment. We're no longer in an environment where you can, uh, if, when you, if you're retired, you can clip a coupon and not touch your principal. And now? And now, uh, obviously, uh, you know you can't you can't live for 20, 30 years from retirement on one to two percent a year. So what investors have done in the last several years to get that there's only two ways to get that yield: duration risk or credit risk. And pretty much everyone has done it by loading loading the boat in their portfolios on credit risk and now credit spreads are so tight and valuations are so rich you're not being paid for that risk so what scares me is that as long as we're in this goldilocks low volatility environment that's fine but if we get if and when we get the next big equity market correction or when volatility increases the high correlation between the credit markets and the stock market mean that the stock market goes down the the bond the credit market's going to go the same way with it so I'm concerned that investors have far too much credit risk in their portfolios not enough diversification
0: well does this mean that they're now going to
5: uh, lavish themselves with a duration risk to add to their credit risk no not especially now if you've got the curve that's flattened so much you know uh, throughout this year and if it gets a little bit more flat uh, going forward I think it would be a big mistake at this juncture if the fed's going to continue to slowly renormalize rates and if inflation starts to creep up a little bit more, uh, and also with Fed balance sheet restructuring, yeah. that could actually take uh, you know longer rates up a little bit. So I think staying intermediate, staying in that four-, five-, six-year area makes the most sense, but just being modestly overweight credit risk. And, and and not not make the really the sole objective of the portfolio to be maximizing yield.
1: So, do you feel like your portfolio has pockets that have excess risk that you, in another environment, would not be comfortable taking?
5: No. Uh, matter of fact, we have anticipated this you know for quite some time, and we have one of our hallmarks of, of the way we manage fixed income money in American Century is to seek diversified sources of return. We don't want duration or credit risk or sector allocation being a you know big concentrated risk.
1: The flip side of that is that returns are likely to be lower.
5: That's right. And we, the, well, the world has to, we have to uh, assume and expect lower returns. So, and what are the returns
1: that you're expecting?
5: Uh, returns, uh, you know, this year, uh, core bond funds have been anywhere to three, three, 4%. I'm thinking maybe two to three. Next year, so that's the big. Let me get this
1: straight: two to uh, two to three percent returns, all in returns, price and coupon, for core bond funds that are about half uh, investment grade corporates and half correct, governments. correct. That would be the lowest performance in a long time. I mean, yeah. In
5: a very long time, and again, that's exactly right. And that and the thing is, is achieving those, maintaining decent returns and decent yields with an appropriate level of risk, and that's the biggest. That's the big. That's job one for managers and investors.
0: Well, just to report this headline from the Associated Press that House and Senate leaders have reached a tax package deal. We're awaiting the details, of course, uh, hmm. of that deal. You know, Rich, the uh, the issue that I that Lisa and I speak about every now and again has to do with uh, automobile loans. And that has been something that uh, has offered yield to yield-starved yes. investors. But 90-day-plus delinquency rates for auto loans is up to about 10% percent. That's the highest since the first right. quarter of 2010. Does that uh, does that give you any pause?
5: It does. And interestingly, um, within the asset-backed sector allocation, our portfolios, we have gone the way of sort of eschewed regular uh, auto loans and home equity and credit card loans because, again, they're very rich as well. And we've gone into some more esoteric areas like fleet and rental cars uh, and also timeshares you know, the, the rate on a, on a timeshare asset back is, you know, 10, 11, 12%. So we can get some very nice yields. And that's a market that's been fairly untapped at this point. So we, when it comes to asset backs and kind of uh, mortgage credit area, we uh, shy away from your traditional asset backed areas because that does concern us and also the valuations.
1: Thank you so much. Really a pleasure to hear what you have to say. Rich Taylor, fixed income client portfolio manager for American Century, which is based in Mountain View, California.